This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels. This is another episode of the 3D Pod with Maxwell Vogue. How you doing, Max? I'm good, Joris. How you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you looking forward to the show? I am indeed. Who's who? Do we have today on the 3D Pod? Well, today we've got Steve Cox. So, Steve actually uh, worked for about 30 years or so at, at Jaguar Land Rover as a project engineer and engineering manager, leading teams and and uh, all sorts of door systems and other parts of the, the Jaguar and Land Rover cars. Then he turned to, well, 3D printing full-time. He became an ambassador for the Create Education Project. Uh, he is working at 3D GBIRE uh, as a research, research and development lead, uh, works at M4E as an independent consultant. He's been doing that for, for like about nine years or so. And he basically trains people on 3D printing and trains them how to use it and uh, how to use uh 3D printing in their business, and uh, yeah, that's why we thought it'd be really wonderful to get his perspective. So, uh, welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks, Joris. It's uh, it's great to to join you both. So, first off, so, so you, you're doing, you know, you had a really long career in, in automotive. What's it like to like so late in your career do switch and do everything by yourself, like be an independent contractor? So that must, uh, to me, it feels very scary. Or was it was it not like that? Uh, it was actually very energizing. Um, as, as you kind of progress through a career in automotive and you get into management, it becomes more about spreadsheets and people chasing you up for progress than it is about, you know, product development and making stuff. And you kind of, you lose that kind of passion that, that you had for making stuff that made you an engineer in the first place. And that's one of the things I found, you know, towards the end of the, my time at Jaguar Land Rover, I've become a little bit disillusioned and, and uh, a little bit stale in terms of I, I kind of completely missed really making stuff you know, on a day-to-day basis. So bailing out and suddenly working for yourself and getting into 3D printing, 3D printing made me realize that making is, you know, what goes core to what do I, I enjoy and um, it, it actually energized me. That's not to say that I didn't take lots of wrong turns along the way um, with with the choices that I made because I, I left without any real plan other than that 3D printing thing. I think I can do something with that, but I didn't have a definite, right, this is what I'm going to do with it and and, uh, and a business plan and all that sort of stuff. And along the way, you know, there were, there were a few cul-de-sacs that I met and, and had to turn around and go back the other way. Okay, well, that's, uh, that's a, kind of a learning lesson there, but still it's very brave of you. Given all your long experience to, to, with a car company, you know, how realistic is the opportunity for 3D printing in cars and where is it? You know, because everybody's always talking about 3D printing cars, but every single time I talk to like a car company or I do something with them, it talks, it takes really slow. It, there's a lot of politics. Um, they're really, really cost conscious and that often doesn't work for us. They're really process driven and that often kind of like also, uh, you know, kind of makes it difficult to implement 3D printing. And yeah, it just, it just seems to me like it's a really difficult, long drawn out process. And then you read the press and it's like, you know, it's like everyone's going to start 3D printing cars on Monday, right? 
3D printed chassis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they take a week. I, I saw that story <laughs> recently. Uh, it's kind of like, yeah, who's going to run a business making a chassis a week? You know, that's yeah. uh, that's unrealistic. Um, I, I still think Yoris, uh, that it's a way off. You know, for for end use parts outside of you know very niche, you know, bespoke, low volume vehicles. Um, it's never at the minute going to fit into the high volume automotive market because, like you said, it's so cost driven. You know, at my time at JLR, if you could deliver a 2% cost saving on a part, they'd, they'd encourage you to sell your wife and your children if you could deliver that, you know. And 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 so often, you know, 3D printing parts come in at a premium cost. So, you know, it doesn't still fit, I don't think, in terms of the, the volume market. But certainly, you know, in the back office, jigs, fixtures, I think, you know, it, it entirely fits there. So it benefits the operations of an automotive company, even though it doesn't necessarily feature on the finished car. Yeah, I think there's hundreds of printers running at several different large automotive companies. Desktop machines usually making these digital fixtures. So, and I've also before I call this a gateway drug uh, for, for for 3D printing in large companies because it's something that you know, it's easy for them to in, uh, to, to uh, implement compared to them changing a production process. So I really love the case for jigs and fixtures and also lockout tagout tooling and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean you can improve the process as a result of using it. So that's really the advantage of it. Yeah, exactly right. And and one of the reasons why I took this career change was because I actually knew what 3D printing could do because we already used rapid prototyping, you know, in the development process. So when we were iterating designs, we were doing, you know, check fits. Can can this part go through that hole and be assembled in place? We'd make rapid prototype parts to prove that out. So, you know, I already knew how it kind of fitted in automotive, which which was a great start. And and the fact that, you know, in 2013, all of a sudden you could do this thing that, you know, happened on a a 100 200,000 pound machine on a 2000 pound machine that sat alongside your your laptop was you know just too big a temptation to resist really totally and i think i think the check fits point that's something that rarely is mentioned but i had for example i've heard various companies saying this like for example a windows manufacturer you might know these kind of like semi complicated european windows where you like you know you, you can you can t- it comes it comes down or sideways or backwards you know? and they also make these check fit type of things just to know if they can actually, in the final iteration, actually put the window in the, in the actually have the installer assemble it. And there's also yeah, other, yeah. Um, I think on boats and stuff like that, there's people doing this as well to try to figure out if it would actually fit in and the guy can actually get the screwdriver in there and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, you talk about windows. I've seen applications there where, you know, people are able to put the jigs and fixtures together to assemble the window while they're waiting for some of the major extrusions to actually be tooled because you can 3D print a, a prototype extrusion, you know, really quickly. It's it's a it's a support for EF print by default so you know it's, it's a really rapid thing to be able to print a, a, a prototype extrusion and then develop the jigs and fixtures way ahead of you getting the the actual extruded profile from the tool part so mm-hmm. yeah no it's totally a good good case i remember once by the way i see that you're actually you you one of the things you specialize in was like door systems and stuff right and I'm fascinated by these, so this is great. Uh, great opportunity for me because uh, two things. One is I, I just look once at how complex these door systems have become compared to years ago, especially like the Windows systems. And the other thing is that one of the one time I had a really long, months-long kind of brainstorm kind of session, and one of the things that came out of it was that this complicated, like the raise and lower the window assembly, that that would be an ideal 3D printed part. 
Um, you, you're right, and, and some of those um, window mechanisms have become ever more complex, and it, it's a complex 3D geometry problem to, to solve, and 3D printing can play a, a great part in that. Um, and I, I think one of one of HP's MJF parts is actually a, a guide channel for a window lift system for a BMW. So, you know, it's, it's demonstrated what it can do in that particular application. Yeah, uh, complicated, really complex parts and assemblies, I think, is a really, really, really good business case. Where, you know, do you see, uh, besides tooling and all these kind of things, do you see, like, end-use parts on the car? Are you enthusiastic about that at all? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, th there's lots of, um, you know, hidden parts, for instance, where 3D printing would, would do an absolutely fantastic job. Um, and, it, and it's an area where I've, I've been very active, you know, in, in the last... 12 to 18 months because you know there's a lot of supply chain issues particularly in the automotive aftermarket and understanding where 3d printing can actually step in um, and, and produce a, a part that that's you know on back order and won't be available for months and months and months that may be preventing the repair of a car uh, you know i think that's a that's a real area that that's ripe for you know 3d printing to step into and it's interesting recently that there's, there is actually now a 3D printing repair in automotive um, user group that's uh, that's looking, you know, into the adoption of of, uh, of this. So, so yeah, lo lots of options. Um, you know, decorative parts maybe not so much, um, but uh, you know, even under bonnet parts, we we can produce those using you know ultra polymers um, on on some of the 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 uh, higher capability FDM machines, for instance. So yeah, I, I see there's, there's lots of opportunities out there. I find it interesting that you've referenced repair parts as being a viable solution, whereas on the assembly line, it's not necessarily viable. You see that more just because, you know, I'm willing to pay more for getting a part repaired and installed, uh, as well as the supply chain issues, or is it is it only work when the supply chain is this, or has been this uh, disrupted? I think it can work because of the cost as well, Max, because, you know, typically an aftermarket repair part is often, you know, a significant multiplier to the OE cost of the part. You know, sometimes I see automotive parts and people tell me, well, this much is, this part is this much. And you kind of look at it in total disbelief, you know, in that you know how much that costs as an OE part. And if they're paying that amount of money for it, you know, that's a crazy premium. And that premium gives us the bandwidth, I think, to to, to squeeze 3D printing in, into that uh, particular area. Not to mention you don't have to then store the part in a big warehouse since you can just print it out theoretically. But yeah, 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 and you know, and there's so many parts in in automotive that are actually obsolete. You know, people don't have the tool for it anymore, or you know that like we've already mentioned the supply chain issues. So you know, there's an awful lot of stuff in in automotive, and and you know, I think if you could release some of the onus on OEs to actually carry stocks for 10, 15, 20 years on a shelf gathering dust because instead you've got a digital inventory that you could call off on demand. You know, I think that's a that's a big incentive for them to, to get into this. But does that kind of a system have to sit on the car company um, because they have the 3D and the files and everything? Or do you think there's a world in which they'd be one day willing to release those 3D files? Or... Is it going to be such a demand that consumers will start making? I mean, I know this is always we talk about the dream, right? The the latch for the the dishwasher, but that consumers will start actually trying, or engineers, mechanics will start making the parts in 3D so that they can print them themselves. 
Like, which does where does it sit? I guess in your vision. I think it would work best if the OEs came to the table, shared the files, but with some limited design rights. So you're not kind of opening it up, you know, into a kind of thingiverse sort of world, but you're you're controlling the rights, um, the, the digital rights to that part to print off, you know, just a certain amount or, or even just a one-off. Um, you know, if we could get to that point and then get the OEs to actually participate, I think that's going to be far more efficient than people, you know, going off in their own directions and trying to reverse engineer stuff, you know, for themselves. Almost like a dealership model, if you will. Like, you know, you have to pay for yeah, those yeah, computers yeah. anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, I, I think we, we do need the OEs to, to kind of join the party. And I think I've started to see some first moves from some of them to, to actually do that. And, and that's encouraging. And it's going to be really difficult. I've had to do, I try to do mass customization projects and also these kind of repair projects. Everybody's really enthusiastic until it gets illegal. Yep. And then somebody's going to say, like, what if some guy prints it and it doesn't work or, you know, blows and up. Then it always gets killed. Yeah. <laughs> Every single time it gets killed. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm always cautious in that first uh, conversation when somebody comes with an automotive part and says, can you print this? And it's like, does it belong to a safety critical system? If it does, then the answer is no. You know? And even if it, it doesn't, then, you know, there's still some IP issues to think about. And, you know, what what risk are you, are you putting out there if you were to 3D print this part and then fit it to a vehicle? I think there is. I mean, I remember once, this was a long time, it was about 10 years ago, so I was talking to like a, a pretty senior guy at a large automotive group, and, and I was just saying, like, yeah, I want to try and see if we could do a project to put, like, a, a, a mass customized 3D printed part in the passenger cabin. And literally, the guy turned white. <laughs> so I thought he was about to faint. And uh, so that was, like, a little bit like, oh, maybe they're not ready. And maybe also, like, we're always really enthusiastic about additive, but all this customization stuff is, is actually kind of really scary if you're trying to come up with safety factors and, and try and deal with crash tests and stuff like this. Yeah, and, you know, some of my uh, my experience in automotive, you know, I had some some great experiences, you know, like testing cars in, in you know, northern Ontario at minus 70, you know, minus 40 with a, with a wind chill that took it down to the equivalent of minus 70. And then the flip side of that was testing cars in Australia in the outback. And you realize with the solar load uh, on a windscreen, how kind of elevated the temperature can get on a dashboard. I'm always really conscious about the kind of heat deflection temperature performance of, of 3D printed parts. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really Do you think the PLA, a PLA dashboard would just kind of start melting in the, <laughs> in the sun? Well, having been in those conditions doing testing at, at the very extremes of temperature, they definitely would. I mean, there's yeah. a it's a very unpleasant place to be actually inside of a car when when it's at that kind of temperature because the the plasticizers in the polymers are leaching out of the part and they, they actually create this dreadful kind of aroma inside the car because they're, they're actually just leaching out of the, the plastics um but yeah pla most definitely wouldn't uh, wouldn't pass muster at all in that application. This is really, really something I've been thinking about. It's like we're in the middle of this heat wave still, right? The hottest month ever, followed by the hottest couple of weeks ever. And not in the UK, buy... we're not. Oh, okay. Well, then, <laughs> then in Europe and a lot of other places, uh, there are. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, maybe you guys had like a weather exit as well. Um, uh... Nice. Nice. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> that was horrible, sorry. Um, so, so, um, so what I was thinking about is like if – 
you know, I went to buy a hat the other day. Normally, I would just say whichever hat, right? But I, I, I really want to get a light-colored hat because I was worried about the temperature. You know, are people going to be taking more and more consideration? Are car companies going to be considering more and more like, hey, let's make the, the cars all white or let's make the dashboards, uh, you know, more cooling properties just because it's going to get warmer everywhere? This is a really random question, but it's something I've been thinking, thinking about lately that it, it might actually kind of feature much more in people's decisions, you know? Yeah, it's an interesting point. That's something I hadn't really considered. It it might make them actually rethink some of the materials they're using in certain applications because, you know, what, what was acceptable before with climate change maybe, you know, isn't isn't performing uh, or, or at the, the right kind of level to resist those high temperatures. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. And maybe, maybe automotive people have got to think about climate change in terms of construction of vehicles. Or you could use yeah, the heat so. to generate electricity and charge uh, an electric. I had an uncle that worked for years on Stirling engines and yeah. Phillips, and then they cancelled it because Phillips cancels every time they invent the future. They cancel it, and then uh, and then uh, and then uh, yeah, that that, would, that could be. Imagine a compact Stirling engine; you could just add to all sorts of things to regenerate, recoup some of that. That that seems like it's a really good idea now. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it would have been viable 50 years ago, but now I think it's a bit more realistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you could 3D print it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, I've tried to look at this. I've looked at making these really complicated ones, like really low mass ones, and I don't know, it could be interesting, but so far nobody's interested. Just like I'm really interested in these energy harvesting, like the Psycho wristwatch kinetic thing, but then 3D print it. Anyway, um, but um, so so I was just wondering. So Steve, besides the car thing, you also do something completely different. I think you've been doing this for for about eight years. So, and that's looking at like you know getting kids into three D printing through this this uh, this this create education project. So tell us a little bit more about the the create education thing first. Yeah, so I mentioned earlier on, you know, once I got into this field, I, I took a few wrong turns. I think I, I, I thought I was going to kind of create a business creating products using 3D printing. Um, but I think along the way, I, I kind of recognized that, um, you know, I sort of knew how to push the buttons of this technology and, and, and you know, push the boundaries of it. And I think that made me realize that, that knowledge was was probably an important thing to, to be able to sell. And, you know, part part of that, I think, was a, a passion within me that engineering was a, a fantastic and still is a fantastic career for me. And I wanted to, you know, really encourage more people into engineering um, or being makers or being technologists, you know, whatever, uh, as long as they're creating stuff. And, and for me, 3D printing was, well, isn't this the ideal tool to inspire people and, and get their creative juices flowing and, you know, really make them enable them to innovate and, and create their own stuff. And uh, so as part of that, I, I kind of became really enthusiastic about, you know, getting 3D printing into education and, you know, back in 2013, when I, I kind of left JLR and my first decision was, you know, what 3D printer should I buy? Oh, I'll buy an Ultimaker 2. It's just come on the market. And uh, I was fortunate in that meeting in November 2013 to meet um, Paul uh, Croft and Alex Mayer, who 
uh, are now the directors of 3D GBIRE. Um, they initially set up as, as Ultimaker GB, but very quickly as part of that, they created this separate entity called Create Education, um, which had that same aim really to, to get 3D printing into the classroom uh, and, and encourage creative thinking, innovation, you know, the next generation of, of engineers. And, and that kind of really fitted with me. And uh, they invited me to become an education ambassador and I'm pleased to say I, I was the original education ambassador for the Create Education project. I think there's now probably something like 40 or 50 but you know I, I'm always proud to say I was I was number one. They, they gave me that um, title back in uh, September 2014 which interestingly I think Yoris was the, the time that I met you for the first time at TCT. So, oh wow. Uh, so, so yeah, it goes back that far. So, um, and yeah, you know, it, it's it's been a fantastic uh, opportunity to to kind of get into into the classroom with three D printers from, you know, with kids from the age of five and six. You know, just getting them, you know, making key rings and stuff like that, and just understanding what the technology can do. You know, right up to further education. You know, in universities and and getting in there and and you know teaching them how to you know push the boundaries of 3d printing i'm curious and, on the educational level how do you overcome or how have you guys if you have the bottleneck of the printer where you have a classroom of 20 kids 40 kids whatever it happens to be obviously not everyone can print at the same time yeah it's a challenge um you know in an ideal world somebody once described to me um 3d printing a bit like um you know when you need eggs you know you can't make a hen lay an egg any quicker so if you need more eggs you need more hens so in an ideal world you know you you, you get more printers um and and you know you you've got a printer farm but obviously a lot of schools don't have the money to to do that so it, it is a bit of a challenge it's a difficult one to um to deal with i mean I, i've been in and run uh, sessions with with um, schools and maybe you can print you know four or five key rings while you're there but then the other 20 you've got to take take away and, and print them in your own time and then come back later to the school with them um, hopefully that they've not forgotten by then the the original experience and then once they hold in that 3d print they they know where it came from and have still got that spark of excitement but it, but it is a challenge, Max. You know, you know the the slowness of three D printing um, is is a bit of an Achilles heel. Um, albeit, you know, we're starting to see some change with that now, with with some of the printers coming onto the market. And do you have any tips for people who want to like uh, you know do this themselves or want to help set this up? Like, are there any kind of like rules or thing or, or, or advice you have for people doing this? The education side of things, I think, just to have a passion for for you know. Uh, wanting to inform the next generation, just just having that confidence to be able to stand up in front of kids and 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 go, look, you know, this is this may be part of the future, and and it's something that you need to know about, and um, it it's kind of self fulfilling after a bit because you know once once you've seen their jaws drop sometimes when you're three D printing something, you think this has made an impact, and and that kind of spurs you on so so i think it's just having the confidence to stand up in front of kids and and, and and be passionate about what you're talking about i don't think you need much more than that i think kids sense whether you're you're passionate or whether you're you know almost reading it from a from a pre-prepared sheet if if you can demonstrate something with passion i think it, it gets through to them okay that's really good and then on top of that you also do this m4a stuff which essentially it's like it's like 
you train people in Autodesk and 3D printing generally, right? So what kind of people you'd end up training most of the time? Or? A mixture, really. So so I train people both in industry and in education. So I've, I've been a certified instructor for Fusion 360 uh, for seven years. Um, uh, and that itself was an interesting part of the journey for me because, strangely enough, I left Jaguar Land Rover never having used CAD because I went from a time when things were on manual drawing boards and then moved into management and then never had the time to learn CAD. I've got a team of engineers working for me that did CAD but I myself was never a kind of CAD user. So when I when I bailed out in 2013, one of the things I had to do somewhere along the way was find a CAD system I could actually understand and use. And uh, I kind of stumbled across Fusion 360 one day in, in 2015. And uh, it's like, wow, I can understand this. You know, this seems quite logical. And uh, it just went on from there. And I got myself into a position where I was a certified instructor and, and you know, I, from there, I've gone on to teach fusion in, into everywhere from secondary schools through to technical colleges through to a lot of the leading universities. Um, it was interesting. I, I, I did a training course at Cambridge University uh, on Fusion 360. I was never clever enough to go to Cambridge uh, as a student, but I was clever enough to go there later and, and run training. So... Uh, so yeah, right, right through the spectrum, uh, really in 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 education, um, and then in industry. You know, there's there's still a lot of people out there that can make use of 3D printing, but you know, the th the key to unlocking it really is having that ability to create stuff with CAD to feed the printer with. So, you know, it's it's a it's a skill that a lot of people um, out there need to pick up. Um, I'm talking especially at the minute to, to uh, one really big company in the food and beverage sector. And, you know, the guys are, are production engineers. They're, they're, not, they're not skilled in CAD, but they are the people who can make use of 3D printing. So, you know, getting them to, to be able to use CAD is, is important for them to, to be successful in adoption of 3D printing and make the efficiency gains that, that I think the, the opportunities out there for them to make. But unless you, unless you do that CAD element of it, you're not going to get there. So, so yeah, it's, it's kind of across the board in, in education and industry. I'm curious, if you don't mind sharing, how long would you say it took you to learn CAD? Um, that's a good question. Because uh, it's, it's kind of like an organic thing, I think. It, it, and it also depends on what's your definition of Fair. learn. How long, how long did it take you to get certified? <laughs> um, it, was about, it was about 12 months, I think, from when I first picked it up to, to when I took the kind of certification. Um, but I, but I did it, you know, without any um, formal kind of training up to a point. I, I spent a lot of time listening to Autodesk webinars where, you know, they showed workflows and things like that. And that was a regular part of my diet at the time in terms of trying to get myself upskilled in CAD. Uh, and, and I'm always grateful for Autodesk for, for what they did there with that. You know, they, they shared so much of, of what Fusion could do through webinars um, that, that that was terrific. But, um, I mean, you, you can become proficient, like, like the production engineer I was just talking about there in this big company. You know, maybe 30 hours of, of work on CAD would be enough to get them to a point where they could probably make most of the stuff that they wanted to, to be able to make, you know, without digging deeper into the, into the weeds of generative design and stuff like that. Just regular solid modeling, you know, 30 hours, they'd probably be quite proficient.
So you chose Autodesk. Pitches Autodesk. Why do I pick Autodesk? Well, or, or like Fusion 360 specifically? Uh, really, because... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that, yeah. And, and, and that's a good point, Max, because, you know, so many training courses that I've run, particularly when you get into further education, you know, the number of students sat there with that, that lit up Apple logo staring back at you says that, you know, a lot of kids go to university and first thing they do is they buy a Mac. So... So, so that that is an important thing, but that that really wasn't the reason why I chose Fusion 360. I, I chose it because you could learn it without, you know, um, this huge instruction manual. The the system that we used at JLR was Katia, which is made by Dassau, who you know is kind of like SolidWorks grown up, uh, really grown up uh, CAD version. And a basic training course in in Katia is like a month, and you walk out of that after a month with a folder of instructions that you can probably use to reach stuff on the top shelf with. Um, and the reason why it's so thick is because it's full of hidden commands. You know, you've got to press control L, stand on your right leg, and then something amazing happens, but you don't know that unless it's actually written out for you in an instruction manual. You know, with Fusion, it's so much icon-driven, drop-down menu-driven, that you can find what you need to do without, you know, searching for a lot of hidden commands. And I think that was one of the first things that, that really appealed to me and made me realize that this was potentially a CAD system that people could, you know, pick up really easily. And uh, and, and, and for me, you know, if we're going to promote 3D printing, we need to promote the ease of use of CAD. We don't want to make it difficult and turn it into some kind of exclusive club that you know, only only a certain you know demographic or sector are actually clever enough to be able to use you know this complicated tool. Why not make it simple and, and easy enough to use for everybody? I will say another thing that Fusion offers, or all of them, Autodesk, is that it's free for a non-commercial license and easy to download. Whereas if you were to go to SolidWorks, like you have to go through a lot to prove that you're a student or something of that nature, unless you're at a university and they're giving it to you. So ease of access also, I think helps. Like we've, it's far too difficult to get some of the software to even try it sometimes. Yeah. 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 And, and for me, you know, that, that in itself opened up a massive opportunity because once people have adopted it, um, because it's free, then they want some training into how to use it, and that that's opened a lot of doors for me, in terms of the work that I've been doing over the you know the last six or seven years that, that I've been a certified instructor. Um, you know, once once education uh, establishments have kind of made that leap, um, often because of cost, then you know they want some assistance and. You know, Autodesk don't just give assistance in terms of free software. You know, they, they've also supplied an awful lot of subsistence in terms of, um, you know, the, the training side of things as well. So they pay they pay me, but the education establishment, you know, doesn't uh, doesn't have to pay. So so they they get it free all round, free software and free training. You know, kind of what's not to like. Um. So so if we talk about just general three D printing training, like. More of that thing. I mean, what what can companies do? Because I have a lot of people that, that there's some excellent programs out there like MIT and stuff like this. But what would you recommend like a large company does for training? And even like, you know, who do you train? Is it every single engineer? Because I think the maintenance engineer, I think that's super powerful because those are the guys that can make uh, these incremental improvements of production and then systems and all this kind of stuff. But, but, you know, are there other groups or should they really, you know, try to define their 3D printing goal before training people? Like, what do you think about that? 
it's a bit difficult sometimes you know people you, you don't always know within a company that you go into who are the people who can actually make the most of the technology you might start sometimes with those maintenance guys or the production guys or you know people looking to print jigs or fixtures you know whatever department they might may be in but you know there, there's other people perhaps in the company that you don't know could could take advantage so you know the idea when i go into training is, is to try and make it you know as as kind of open as possible to 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 go look you can do this and even if you couldn't take advantage of this maybe you could see that you've got a colleague somewhere who could make use of that particular aspect of 3d printing so so i think it's it's getting through the door in the first place that's the the most difficult thing um uh, you know i think once you've got in there people have kind of recognized you know that, that this can do something for them um you know it, it's uh, it's my role to try and make it as engaging as possible with the people that they've put in front of me and hopefully they become disciples within that company for, for 3d printing and and kind of um, spread the word around so i was talking to um to one of the guys at 3D GBIRE yesterday that they'd been to a textile manufacturer um, and they, they'd recently kind of adopted 3D printing um, mainly because their machinery is so old they've got real problems with obsolescence and uh, he came back yesterday from doing some training with them and, and said that you know in the space of three to four weeks you know they'd really press the accelerator once they knew what what a 3d printer could do they were doing all the kind of things that you think that's what 3d printing is really good at and you know he said they kind of they press the accelerator on, on their adoption and we're using it absolutely everywhere and and you know his, his words to me were it, it kind of does your heart good when when you go into places like that and you see that, that they've really grasped it with both hands and, and run with it and, uh, and and are finding applications for it way beyond what you showed them you know in the training yeah, I think the where to deploy additive, what works and what doesn't, you know, how much it costs, you know, where we have problems like with heat deflection temperatures or with food safety sometimes, you know, if they understand that kind of like the, that kind of overreaching thing, then they can really use it much more as like a duct tape. And that's, we're really good at being this duct tape, you know, for the business, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think for me that, you know, the hardest word in 3D printing to use is the word no, not that application, you know, so... People have got this impression with 3D printing, it can do anything. Well, you know, sometimes, yeah, it can, but it, it doesn't do it very well in some cases. And, you know, if you did do it, you wouldn't have a very satisfactory result. So for me, you know, for me, it's all about applications. You know, all I'm ever interested in is applications, applications, applications. I'm, I'm not really that bothered about the machine side of thing. Um, materials is interesting because new materials unlock new applications, you know, on existing hardware. But but for me, it's all about applications and, and making sure that those applications that people pick are the right ones where they're going to get the most benefit from, from 3D printing. But sometimes saying to somebody, don't do that that's not the right way to use 3d printing it's either going to be too expensive it's not going to give you the result you're going to be disappointed and you know what i don't want is, is people to go oh yeah that 3d printing we tried it it's a bit it's a bit rubbish really isn't it you know and, and then you've lost that that customer you know for, for a long time it'll be a long time before you get them back if if they end up doing things that 3d printing you know isn't good at or shouldn't be useful 
but it's so hard yeah. for engineers to say no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I've been guilty of that. You know, I've said yes to things, right. and then well, we just want to solve the problem. Yes to this? However, the solution <laughs> exactly. looks like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the interest. Sorry, go on, yours. No, go on, go on. Uh, see. I was going to say one of the areas I, I'd kind of been really interested in and, and done a fair bit of work around is, you know, disability. Um, you know, people with disabilities, mass production doesn't doesn't work for them. You know, they've all got very individual needs often, and you know, nobody's going to mass produce a part to make one off. But of course, that's that's what three D printing is really good at. And uh, you know, I, I found myself with some you know some some great opportunities sometimes because I've said yes, even if I've thought. I'm not really sure, you know, because people have come to me and said, do you think we could do this for this disability? And and you go, well, yeah, I think, I think we could make a go at it. And, uh, and, and it's led me down some, some quite interesting paths, that side of things. But that, that area of application for 3d printing is, is something that's, you know, quite kind of interesting for me. And, you know, only last, last week I was, I was out at a client who's, who's looking to, you know, to do things around wheelchair sport and trying to make that more inclusive and, uh, you know, looking at some, some design work and some 3d printing for that. So it's, it's a, it's an ongoing theme, that one. Not to mention oh, the cost aspect of it, because I find that special needs accessories or aids often are very expensive. Whereas 3D printing can make them a lot cheaper, making those customized one-offs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the most powerful stories that I often tell with, with 3D printing and disability is I was at a disability conference and we were demonstrating what 3D printing can do. And this lady came around, she was in a, she was in a powered wheelchair and she got a water bottle and she was clutching it, you know, in between her legs. And she said, there's nowhere on this wheelchair for me to actually stow this water bottle. And it was like, oh, right, okay. And, and that's a major problem for you. And she said, yeah, it is a major problem. I have to drive drive the wheelchair around, clutching it between my legs. So it's kind of like, right, okay. So 15 minutes worth of uh, design work in Fusion 360. I kind of designed this clip that went on the armrest that, that had a hook that she could actually hook this water bottle uh, onto. So 15 minutes in Fusion, 45 minutes on, on an Ultimaker printer. She came back an hour later. We clipped the clip onto the, uh, onto the armrest. She hung a water bottle off it and she went, you've just transformed my life. And, and this was like her actual words. And, and it was like, well, to me, that just felt like a 15 minutes worth of design work and a bit of 3D printing and a, and a 10 cent print. But that's the effect that, that it can have. You know, it doesn't have to be expensive. And 3D printing doesn't have to be complex either, I don't think, to, to you know, produce assistive aids for, for people who've got disability. Yeah, I love this. I love this example. It's one of my favorite applications, and and I'm obsessed with a couple of things like continually, and I change obsessions a lot. But at the moment, super obsessed with orthotics on the one hand, and then also like wheelchair seats in particular, and uh, and also just this one-off stuff for a really limited stuff for people who have a particular issue and a bigger disability. Uh, I'm just like I have this other podcast, like the the prosthetics and orthotics podcast. And we come across tons of examples like this. And the other thing is I've heard a similar example to, to, to what you've experienced, Steve, by a lot of people who end up giving presentations for people who, when one person has a disability, there's almost always like some kind of interesting idea or interesting product or interesting one-off that comes out of that for some really unique, like, you know, I want to play golf, but 
or you know i i can't i have this remote control thing i'm paraplegic but i need to you know have a you know but i only have one kind of tip for the remote control and sometimes i got sore because i want a different type tip you know there's tons of these things out there and so i'm really really obsessed with this example as well yeah yeah me too like i said it it's just uh, it's just where mass production doesn't fit in and uh, and where 3d printing absolutely does yeah, I love it. If you ever want to start a business on this, I would love yeah. to talk to you about this. Okay. Because I would love this. It just, it just, I, I, but every time, like I, I've talked to so many people that had a similar experience where it's somebody like coming to them and it's a new thing. Like a, they need a, a, a way, a, a clip next to their door to hang up their, um, they transfer from like a walker to a stick or something and then to a wheelchair and they just want to hang everything up so they can do it themselves because they need someone to stabilize them. And if they, you know, just have one grip and then one place and they could click the, 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 the stick in, then, you know, they don't need the other person, you know, there's stuff like this. And then you're like, you're saying the payoff is immense given the, the, the amount of effort. Uh, it's yeah. a really beautiful application for the technology, I think. Yeah. And another example is I've, I've got a friend who unfortunately had a stroke and lost the use of one half of his, his, uh, his, his body and his, his one arm isn't really usable. And, and he was complaining to me that, you know, when he puts the toothpaste on the toothbrush, you know, he's trying to do it one-handed, the toothbrush falls over, the toothpaste falls off. So, you know, I quickly designed a, a little cradle that just held the toothbrush upright while he squeezed the, the toothpaste on with, with one arm, you know, and it's kind of like, he said, this is fantastic. He said, this is this has just made it so much easier for me. And, and again, it was an example of, you know, 10 minutes piece of design work and a, and a 10 cent print again. Yeah, I'm really, really obsessed with this. What are some other applications you really, you're really interested in at the moment? Um, I've been doing a lot of work around metal uh, FFF. So, so that's an area I've spent a lot of time working in over the last 12 to 18 months. Um, you know, it, it emerged just as the pandemic hit and that slowed things down a little bit. But, you know, since the world's got, got back going again, then, you know, people's interest in that has, has really picked up. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of things, I think, that, that, are, that are out there that, um, you know, that, that, that can support. You know, people have awful difficulties getting hold of CNC machine parts. And, uh, you know, it, it's not just the cost. It's, it's the lead time sometimes for CNC parts that uh, that means that metal fff can can actually um step into the breach yeah, so these bound metal technologies super excited let's talk about this separately you can talk about other stuff there, but the bound metal stuff really really exciting it's super low cost even if we're done with it the the, the, the the you know the parts are super low cost at the end as well but you know as we know the sintering thing designing for the sintering thing really complicated like first off about that if you would you know how do you solve that is it just iterating is it just making a whole bunch of these things is that the way to figure out the shrinkage or uh yeah you can go through that especially if you you're intending to kind of produce this on an ongoing basis you might need to go through an, an initial iterative phase to to get everything kind of you know just right in terms of shrinkage and and design and you know support and all of that sort of thing um but um but yeah you know so the design for for additive is is a is a key part of, of that as well um but uh even without that, sometimes I've done one-offs straight off and they've done the job without any need to, to iterate. Um, I did a, a job at the beginning part of this year for a really well-known um, company and uh, they 
they needed some very specific parts for their tool room. They'd had some outrageous quotes um, for this kind of one-off um, set of six parts that needed to be CNC machined. And uh, I've heard different stories about what they were quoted, but it was in the thousands, if not you know, um, tens of thousands, uh, depending on who you talk to. And, uh, you know, I printed them one off of each one in Metal FFF. And uh, they were they came in at sort of £500 uh, for, for the set. And that included the debind and sintering. And they, they work perfectly. So, you know, it, it can be done in one hit. But I think for it, to do that you do need to have gone perhaps through a little bit of the experience that i've been through in understanding you know the the traps that are out there that you might fall into with with metal fff could you give could you give us some some advice some some things about like how to get started is it is it the same as like if regular printing i'm just going to start making a bunch of cubes and then i make a little more da- daunting cubes <laughs> is that how yeah, it's yeah. just metal <laughs> <laughs> um yeah you know it's, it's always just it's always a good idea to start simple, but I, I often find that um, customers don't want to do that. You know, first of, as soon as they know that there's this capability out there, they want to throw some outrageous stuff at you. So, you know, the first thing is size. You know, you, you don't really want to go bigger than something that fits in the palm of your hand, because once you do, then shrinkage becomes much more unpredictable. So, you know, the, there's quite a few guidelines that you need to think about and it's interesting that that the perhaps the 3d printing side of it is is actually the easy part so just because you can 3d print it doesn't mean that it will successfully go through debind and sintering so there's almost like a design for debind and sintering element not just design for additive manufacturing that you need to bring together to to kind of be successful Okay, okay, that's that's really good. I, I think I, I'm really excited about it. And every once in a while, some applications come up, most like brackets and holders and stuff like this. Uh, and I'm 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 really you know once we we get more skilled at it, I really think we'll, we'll see many many more applications with this quite inexpensive technology. What, what are some other applications you're super excited about? Um, I've done a lot of work in the um, food and beverage industry, which isn't perhaps a sector that most people would initially identify you know with us in terms of 3d printing fitting in there um but but you know in the processing equipment in that industry they, they've got so many bespoke parts um sometimes they can't get replacements sometimes the part cost is is ridiculous for quite honestly for for, for what some of the parts are um so so they've they've seen some you know real um wins in in that industry from using 3d printing and i kind of mentioned earlier about you know materials um sometimes unlocking applications you know one of the things i've been trying to to um get in place for a long time is a blue metal detectable material because the food and beverage industry uses vision and x-ray to make sure that nothing has got into the food chain from the production line and that material didn't exist until well it did exist but not in 3d printing filament form until about a month ago when all of a sudden color fab went here it is metal detectable pa and it's like thank thank the lord for that and uh, just yesterday, um, I got my first successful application finished with that material um, that's going to go on a uh, potato chip line, which is a, an interesting oh, that's kind cool. of application. So, so that's, another, that's another huge area. I mean, that, that 
just and I, I was so happy. I guess as well has a that's not metal detectable. At least it's blue. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, and, and, and safe. Uh, but I was so happy to see the the color fab material. I just knew that people would just go completely nuts over that. Um, in, in any kind of processing business, uh, whether you have GMP and other stuff and food and all that stuff. Yeah, and it, it prints really nicely. Um, that, that, that's the thing, you know. You, I looked at the print yesterday and thought, yeah, this this looks damn good. You know, this, uh, this you don't need to make any excuses for this part. So, so yeah, and and, no. and and that kind of thing is is a good example, like I said earlier, of where materials suddenly coming along, you can then look at applications that maybe were off limits before, and and that's always really exciting. I think for me. Yeah, totally, totally. I think, yeah, this food, beverage, all that production line improvement stuff, I think that's just super, super inspiring. So, hey, Steve, thank you so much for your time today. This was great. It's been a pleasure. It's, uh, it's been good talking to you both. And uh, Max, thank you uh, for your time as well. Always, Doris. Thank you. And thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. You have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.